0: Coming up on the Mark Divine Show.
1: You know, when I tell a patient to go home and rest, I'm not telling them to go home and do nothing. To rest is doing something.
0: Welcome to the Mark Divine Show. This is your host, Mark Divine. On this podcast, I'm going to explore once again what it means to be fearless by examining courage through the lens of one of the world's most inspirational and compassionate leaders. I talk to folks from all walks of life, motivational scientists, and peace crusaders, and including 102-year-old medical practitioners, pioneers in holistic medicine, such as Dr. Gladys McGarry. Check it out. Dr. McGarry is 102 years old, 102 and three quarters. She's just recently written The Well-Lived Life. She's recognized as a pioneer in allopathic and holistic medical movements founding diplomat of the American Board of Holistic Medicine and co-founder and president of the American Holistic Medical Association incredible Dr. Gladys lives and works in Scottsdale where for many years she shared a medical practice with her daughter and continues to this day as a medical consultant maintaining a healthy diet enjoying a good piece of cake every day and living a well-lived life Gladys thanks so much for joining me today on the Mark Divine show <laughs> Super stoked to have you here today.
1: I'm so happy to be here. I think it's amazing that we can do this. You know, isn't it?
0: What other scenario would you and I had? Would you and I have been connected to have a conversation like this?
1: And you know, when I was a kid, we didn't have a telephone. We didn't have anything.
0: <laughs> I read that you spent the first 15 years in India. Uh-huh. So you're 102 right now. So that was in the. 20s? 102
1: and three quarters. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah, every, every quarter counts at this age, right? <laughs> what years were you in India? Like, give us. Like... I was
1: born 1920 in India, and my mother went into labor with me at the Taj Mahal.
0: Are you serious?
1: <laughs> I think she's kind of a drama queen or something. Then when I was 15, I came to the States for college. What were your parents doing in India? They were both osteopaths, and now my mother was a physician. When <laughs> that was a very rare thing, she was an osteopath. They were medical missionaries with the Presbyterian Church, and so we lived in tents in the winter time in the jungle of North India. People didn't know anything about it, you know. My my parents reached out to the forgotten people that were there in the jungles of. North India. That's quite a big adventure. Wow! You no, know, not just big adventure. The perfect place to be for me. I thought this was just absolutely divine. That the little Indian kids would run along, we'd play along together, and they'd rub my hand to try to get the white color off. <laughs> <laughs> That's.
0: Isn't awesome. that lovely? That is lovely. <laughs> I'm curious um, now, in retrospect, how did that formative experience in India Shape you, you know, because India is very, you know, especially northern India, very spiritual. The whole culture is inclined toward introspection, and I know maybe not in the really poorest fringes, you know, there's still struggle for survival, but you know, it's very different than Western culture, obviously.
1: My parents started a after they finished the work it was out in the jungles. They and my aunt Bell started a home for the children of leper parents. Oh my! In North India right across from Murshikesh, and these children, their parents sent them from all over India, because if they grew up with their parents, they were lepers and they would have to be beggars. Mm -hmm. But when they got the children out and they were taken away, not from their parents, but taken away so that they could have a home where they were loved and cared and taught some things, that were really, really important. And so there are thousands of people, men and women around the world, who have benefited from this little children's home up in North Aeneas.
0: That's extraordinary.
1: You know, I grew up watching that kind of vision from my parents, the way that they were able to reach the poorest of the poor and the ones who were rejected above all, you know. So for me, I could see no difference. Sure, the kids were trying to get my white off, but, but I was somebody who was running around the, the jungles like they were, and we were just having a great time, you know. And then that was until I started school. Then everything went <laughs> haywire. <laughs>
0: well, that's also when you became a teenager, and you're now in American culture, and whew, what a difference.
1: No, the, when I started first grade, I couldn't read or write.
0: Oh, that's what you meant. I thought you yeah. meant when you came to America. No,
1: well yeah, yeah that's another story, but <laughs> I, that that was my two years of of being the class dummy and rejected and you know, bullied and the teacher called me the dumb one and, and then I had to repeat her class and I still couldn't read. I didn't know what was wrong with me. I just couldn't read. Because when I got home after a day in school, everything was fine. And, you know, I had this safe place where I could go, which I was so necessary. It included my family, but also my aya. The ayah was like the nursemaid or second mother and so on. I went to school, Woodstock School in the Himalayas, and our home was a mile above the school and a thousand foot drop to school. So I would drag myself up this hill because I knew the Aya was sitting at the top of the path with her chadar and she'd see me coming up and she'd say, Idarau, come here. And I would go over and tuck under her arm until my world came back into shape. And then I could go on with my brothers and do a thing, you know. But the next day, I had to go back to school where I was a dummy. It was this kind of a of a split. I knew I wasn't a dummy, but I couldn't read and write. And they had no idea. This is dyslexia, right? Is no it? name for it. No name. And my parents weren't taught it, anything about stuff like that. They kind of figured out that maybe it was because Urdu is written from the other side, and I just gotten mixed up. I mean, they... Excused it that way; it wasn't something that the world knew anything about. But when I started the American Holistic Medical Association, there was a time when we were having a board meeting, and there were six of us physicians sitting around the table. I mean, there were ten physicians sitting around the table, and six of us were severely dyslexic. <laughs> Amazing. And we looked into each other, and we said, "Well, that's why we're looking for the alternatives." Right. You know because. I don't know how I learned to read it. And they didn't know. We looked at each other and said, how do you learn? I don't know. <laughs> Taught myself. I learned to read. I had to read. I had to get through medical school. There were things I had to do. And so we learned. And so it was the understanding of this sort of dual life that I had lived and the way that the whole process of medicine was evolving into something that, I didn't accept totally what was being taught in medical school. In fact, the dean sent me to the psychiatrist twice because I was looking for something deeper. Where do you think, maybe it's a where
0: or when or a why, maybe it's all three, the Western medicine got divorced from the mind body connection, you know, and just looked at all as just a physical expression of disease? I don't think it was really like that in the early. Like earliest part of the century was
1: it wasn't there much more of a holistic approach? I think what a t still brought into the field was not that that's the osteopathy, the whole concept of the body being the teacher you're really learning what was going on, and that's what my parents they were taught as osteopaths, but I think when the importance of passing tests and understanding structures and so on, was made so rigid right at the turn of the century. I think that that shifted. And then it continued to shift.
0: Right. Yeah, we shifted culturally into just really like staunch materialists. And if it couldn't be examined, you know, and have evidence behind it with some sort of material scientific study, then it was completely rejected. And so anything that was and the side of energy work, or you know, the mind-body connection, or the power of positive thinking—all that stuff. Like you know, early advocates of that, like Norman Vincent Peale and and um, Napoleon Hill, like they were Emile Q. A. with his uh, positive affirmations, were having a profound impact on healing. Yeah, but it was all just rejected by Western medicine because it wasn't something you could measure very easily.
1: And even Larry Dawsey's prayer, right, had on plants and so on. Those were things that. When we started America, the Holistic Medical Association, it took us two years to decide how to spell holistic. <laughs> the root word we were looking for was health, healing, and holy.
0: Oh, did you guys coin the term holistic?
1: Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. That's fascinating. Well, oh, I don't know. Somebody else was talking about it, but spelling it with an H, we did right as opposed
0: to WH. Yeah. like holistic. Yeah.
1: There was a, a shift happening in the field after the war because after the war everything was body mind period we were just beginning to understand the mind but at least it was there you know milton erickson was we worked real closely with milton started the a realization that um, hypnosis was something that could be used you know so there were these different modalities that were beginning to emerge and so there were a whole group of us who began to understand that. The advocacy work helped us a lot. My, Bill Minket was my husband, uh, helped us a lot in understanding the importance of just energy, what energy is, and the whole process of who we as beings are, was just something that was totally
0: woo We're not out of the woods yet with that, right? I mean, we're still a lot of hands-off uh from the mainstream medical, but it's definitely like we were talking before we started recording, it's, it's sprouting up all over the place oh, yeah! Now, in the last 10 years in particular. I'm curious, you also were the co-founder of the Academy of Parapsychology in Medicine. Tell me about what your view of parapsychology is. What does that
1: mean for us? It means the ability for us as physicians to reach beyond the body-mind in understanding what it is that we are working mm-hmm. with and that parapsychology includes the basic psychology but beyond the basic psychology there was this something else is going on
0: so the, there there's energy systems that are beyond the the human individual system that can be affecting or play a role in healing that makes sense to me it's like the, the word metaphysics it just means beyond the physical or the unseen unseen world which science will deny, but physics is beginning to recognize as everything is as energy, like you said, and it's just expressing in these different life forms and also inanimate objects and, and non-seen or non-physical forms of life.
1: Well, you know, um, my eyesight has gotten very poor so that I can't read now because of my can't, I can't see the left. But as my eyesight has gotten dimmer, my inside has gotten brighter it's a matter of allowing myself to really reach in beyond what i'd even been teaching about and reaching beyond that you know it's an amazing time
0: that brings up something that i wanted to talk about you know i mentioned to you that um, i was a seal but before i was a seal for 4 years i got into a martial art and i started meditating and then I got exposed to visualization. I don't know if it was through the Grandmaster or through my reading because I was, you know, like you, I was a voracious learner and everything to do with.
1: Well, Milton Erickson did a lot.
0: Erickson did a lot of work, yeah. There, so visualization was nothing new. And I think even Napoleon Hill in his book, his work, you know, he talks about the power of that. So I started to – anytime I would get injured, which happened a lot on the karate dojo floor, you know what I mean? I would start visualizing. I use visualization And I would visualize a little army of, you know, construction workers, you know, tearing down the old broken ligaments or whatever and replacing them. And it took some time. But what I found is like I started to heal much faster, like twice as fast as my peers. And and so I've been teaching that for years. And and I'm just curious, is that something that is part of your, um, your work with clients to help them use the power of visualization and imagery? Absolutely.
1: And I've been so pleased with the stem cells that have shown up. Because using them as the reality that science has told us about and that we have within us these packets of energy that really could listen to us. In fact, in this book, I talk about a patient of mine who really wanted to, or what's the name of that uh, trek in Spain? Oh, yeah. the
0: Something Santiago Trail. Right,
1: right. She'd always wanted to do that and she injured her knee and was going to probably have to have surgery. And she came in and we we were talking about it. The whole idea of losing that ability to do that trick was central in her life. She, she really had always, as a child or somebody had really, really wanted to do this, you know, and we got a good conversation going about how she could really. Work with those stem cells because they knew what to do and they were the ones, so and so on and so forth. She grabbed hold of that, and within six months, her knee had healed. When
0: you're talking about the stem cell knowing, I mean, I agree with you, but so would you visualize the stem cells and talk to them like,
1: yeah, you know, like little people, you know,
0: yeah, like little soldiers?
1: However, she could visualize them. My visualization was my visualization of that, and so I would share that with her. But however she could visualize them, that was the important thing, and she latched on to that. I really changed the name of my work with medicine from holistic medicine to living medicine because it takes it to the next dimension, you know, that life itself is the great healer. If you stop life, you die, you know. So the whole concept of living medicine. I have a friend and patient who just died a month ago at age of eighty nine. No, seventy seventy eight. Oh, I don't know. Decades get all next up. Anyway, the point is that she lived from the time that she was eighteen months old when she was injured with one quarter of one kidney. Not possible. I watched this woman. Have all kinds of illnesses and things come and go, and she would deal with it her own way.
0: Yeah. You know, what's coming to me, and I, because I love this conversation, is this what you just said life is meant to flow, life is movement. Yeah. Life is flowing through us, expressing as us all the time. And so it wants to move. So the, the more you can allow the energy to move, life force to move through uh, openness of your mind, openness of your heart, movement of the body, being outdoors, exercise, right? And in relationship to others, play, dance, you know, knit, read, whatever, just life wants to move. Because if you stop the movement, then that's when it starts to get stagnant, you know? And so I use the metaphor of like, yeah, if you want your life to be like like the Ganges flowing as opposed to like a stagnant pond, you
1: know, where everything dies. And if you're stuck in a place like and you're always looking over the shoulder into the darkness behind you, you're going to get a stiff neck. (laughs) You have to move that head forward and start looking towards the light. That's awesome. You know, the darkness will stay there. It'll be always there. You could always look for it.
0: Better to ignore it. I came across a quote this morning that I love, which is completely appropriate uh, from Soren Kierkegaard. It says, life is understood backwards but it must be lived forwards.
1: There you go. Isn't that great? <laughs> yeah, exactly.
0: So let's talk about your book. Um, is a well-lived life or life lived well? Let's see. The well-lived life. It, it could be
1: either way, I guess. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, at first when, they, when we started talking about the title, I didn't like that. Really? I didn't want my life to be the one that was well-lived. The well-lived life is what the reader is getting, not You know, what I've done is done, and it's there, but the person who can begin to understand these concepts and latches on to them, that's a well-lived life.
0: Yeah, I agree with that. And a well-lived life is a great example for others. Yeah. You know, I look at, like, there's no one human who is better than another. We're like a bunch of flowers. You don't go to a flower field and say, oh, this flower is better than that flower. But as humans, we do that all the time in judgment and separation. Yeah. But if we all could just look at each other, look at humans like a big flower field and say, wow, everyone's different, but everyone's beautiful. And everyone could be a potential life lived well. So I'd be interested in how that flower of Gladys lived her life, right? And Because and, there's lessons there. There's lessons in everyone.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, the big saguaro is beautiful and its blossom is beautiful, but the tiny little African daisy, which will grow at the bottom of the saguaro, is just as beautiful. But the roots of the saguaro go deep, deep into the earth, but the daisy is just at the top. You know, so you have friendships and relationships which are very deep and they hold your soul and you know, it doesn't blow over during the wind. But the little blossoms of the African daisy Every time you get a big suit, those little roots are going to go floating off. But it doesn't make one more beautiful than the other.
0: I'm excited to have Wild Health as a sponsor of The Mark Divine Show. You know, over the years, I've had people ask me what my exact morning routine is, what my exact exercise, what food I eat, what supplements I take. And sure enough, I tell them, and it will probably help them, but I also tell them that it really is more beneficial to personalize your exercise and to personalize your nutrition and your supplementation. In other words, personalize your health, which is why I'm excited to introduce today's sponsor, Wild Health, founded by two emergency room physicians. They take a proactive and preventative approach to personalize healthcare, and they call it precision medicine. Wild Health will use your genetics and biometrics and lifestyle data and then help determine what your body needs Your body specifically for nutrition, exercise, sleep, supplements, and more. All of this, when dialed in, will help you function at your best and promote your longevity. So listening to this show, you obviously care about your health, which means you might find this interesting. If stress is an issue, and I don't know who it isn't, then your cortisol level, which is the primary stress hormone, is probably elevated. 50% of all wild health patients have seen their cortisol levels improve following their health recommendations tailored to their unique genetic makeup. To help you implement an individualized care plan, Wild Health pairs every individual with a care team, which consists of a board-certified precision medicine physician and an accredited health coach, who you can message anytime through their super convenient app. Wild Health is fully virtual via telemedicine, available anywhere and everywhere in the United States. And they're generously extending the Mark Divine Show 20% off the cost of membership with the code unbeatable, go to wildhealth.com/unbeatable and use that code unbeatable at checkout for that twenty percent off of membership. That's Wild Health, W-I-L-D-H-E-A-L-T-H, and unbeatable spelled U-N-B-E-A-T-A-B-L-E. Make this commitment to yourself. Start taking control of your health today with Wild Health. I'm stoked to have Momentus as a sponsor of the Mark Divine Show. At Unbeatable Mind, I encourage clients to follow the six pillars, exercise and movement, nutrition and fueling, stress management, time and nature, community and practice, and the granddaddy is sleep, sleep and recovery. It is so crucial, this last one. If all the others are dialed in and sleep is out of whack, then you're going to suffer. You've got to get a good night's sleep every night. That's why I really, really love Momentous Sleep Pack. Momentous Sleep Pack is an incredible supplement featuring a 30-day supply of easy-to-use tearaway packs with three natural ingredients that prime you for a good night's sleep. The science behind Momentous' products are second to none. The combination of ingredients helps me get to sleep faster, stay asleep longer, and have the highest quality sleep possible. When I take Sleep Pack, I wake up feeling really solid, a feeling I rarely had with any other sleep supplements. Designed by the world's leading experts and used by the world's leading teams and athletes, but made for all of us. You got to try out Momentus to dial in your sleep. Check them out at dot l i v e m o m e n t o u s. dot com. Use the code DIVINE, D-I-V-I-N-E, for 20% off your first order. Again, that's livemomentus.com with a code DIVINE. Thank you, Momentus, for dialing in my sleep. A big point that you make, I think, in your book is. And I want to talk about is this idea that we don't like we're not alone. Everything that we are and do is in relationship to others and to the, our, the world around us. It's co-creative, right? Absolutely. And I think when people finally get that, it, it's a radical shift in their perspective and how they live.
1: Yes, if we're really going to understand this, we have to get that into ourselves. But you know, I have a word that I'm using now to help understand this, and it's called femifestation.
0: Femifestation?
1: Femifestation. And you know how that happened? I work with my dreams. So, okay, this one about 10 years ago or so, I woke up with a crash in my dreaming, and I'm in the dream and out of the dream, and I see myself in a valley in the high Himalayas. And on the right-hand side, there's a Young woman splayed out on the ground, just barely breathing. And on the left hand side, there's a huge man in armor in the same position, just barely breathing. And I'm looking at these two and I'm wondering what this is. And the voice came to me and said, These two forces have been punching each other for eons. It's time they opened their fingers and understood each other. They're killing each other. And I looked. Again, at this picture that was there. And the girl, the woman, was on the right hand side, which is the masculine side. And the man was on the left side, which is the feminine side. So I'm thinking, boy, this is a big thing. This is really important. So I had this psychic friend of mine, Rosalie Dearhart. I called her and we were talking about this. And she says, you know, I've been thinking about. The whole process of manifestation, she says, manifestation is like climbing Jacob's ladder. You get a degree, you do that, you get to buy a house, you manifest something, and you climb up this ladder. Women have been trying to do that, and we've accomplished it to a certain extent. But it's just that's just not where our juice and our energy is. We don't have that Jacob's ladder we have a spiral. We can be up on the fifth rung of the spiral and know what's going on down on the second rung, and things have to femifest before they manifest. A pregnancy is a perfect example of this because the whole pregnancy, however much long it is, is one unit. The mother and the baby are one unit. What the mother thinks, the baby thinks. What the mother eats, the baby eats. It's a whole process as one living unit. It manifests itself when that baby takes its first breath. It then becomes, it manifests. So I think this whole concept of our duality is something that is really important. And for us as women to Think we have to be like men. Like when I was in medical school, I went to a Women's Medical College in Philadelphia, the only women's medical college in the country. 50 of us, over the first year, only 25 of us graduated because the whole concept was you have to be available to the patient and manifest. They didn't use the word, but they were saying, manifest the healing in a way that they, you know, the the whole idea of medicine was manifesting the reality of disease and pain. So those two had to really focus. And I began to say, and we began to think was, no, that's not our job. We have to prepare for that. We have to grow into that. We have to develop the feminist aspect, the duality of our nature. We have that dual nature within us, but we didn't understand that. Yeah, that's interesting.
0: That spiral, I, I was thinking about that recently in the terms of like starting with the cultural context, but it also has to do with our internal duality nature. So I'm glad you brought that this distinction. But, you know, the Western mental models just say, is linear. It's got a beginning and it's end, and there's cause and effect. Whereas the Eastern model and the agrarian models are circular, right? And they're just different perspectives, but if you bring them together, if you bring a line and a circle together, you get a spiral. And that's an integrative approach, right? Where you can still have some directionality, which is the masculine, but the circularity and you know coming back to your center, which is the feminine, is part and parcel an equal partner in that. And I think that's what you're talking about, I think that you're right. women are much more inclined to appreciate or naturally experience that, that balance between the masculine and feminine, even though culture and you know medicine has tried to strip the, or force you into the masculine. But um, I think you know men have it equally, but it's just so taboo
1: to express it that it's really suppressed. To trust it is what's so important after you, you manifest as a being. And you have a name, so you become who you are. you have manifested it with your first breath, then you have to let the manifestation be come within you. I call it the physician within
0: you know being authentic and okay to be inwardly focused, quiet and to Right. Develop that insight in the internal skills where most men are outwardly focused because that's, you know, that's the way we're trained. That's the way our brains are wired to think.
1: You know, my eldest son is a retired orthopedic surgeon. Mm -hmm. And he came through Phoenix and as he was going down to Delaware, Texas to start his practice. And he said to me, Mom, you know, I'm going into this world, I'm going to have people's lives in my hands. He says, I don't know if I can handle that. And I said to him, Carl, if you think you're the one who does the healing, you have a right to be scared. If you can understand that within that patient is your colleague, and that's the patient's physician within them who actually knows what you are saying and what you're doing, and that this is so important to, that you do both of them, you allow that inner aspect of the patient to tell you how they're going to accept what it is that you're telling them.
0: I love that. So you've been through many ups and downs in life. How do you recommend others move beyond pain and getting really stuck from life's kick in the jimmy?
1: Well, you know, for my last birthday, the 102nd birthday, I rode in on a tricycle into the audience on a tricycle because of that thing. And I did a little talk, and I said, this tricycle is allowing us to be, look at what it is that we're doing. First of all, we start out with two wheels, and these wheels are the cycles in our lives. But they can't go any place. They're just cycling there, and they are doing their own circle of life and, and so on. They can't do anything until they are put into a structure, which is the frame of the tricycle, and then they can begin to move and do something, but they can't do that until they get the third wheel. The third wheel is the one that now brings into the cycle of the two of them the direction or the way it could go and so on. But even that can't really do anything until somebody sits on that seat. And so you bring that whole consciousness into reality, which is there to really go along with this amazing structure that has been created. And then we could go where we need to go.
0: So if you're feeling stuck, don't focus on the structure. Get back into the The reality that's allowing it. Yeah. Yeah. Go back to source energy. I love that. Yeah. there was a great quote I was reading in an interview you did. And you were talking about, or someone asked you about the pain from the divorce that you had, a 46-year marriage that fell apart. And you said something that I thought was really profound. You said, it's not a matter of getting over stuff like that. It's a matter of living through it. Can you talk about that a little bit more?
1: Yeah, because if you get over it, you just shove it in the corner. Right. It doesn't heal. You have to love, and life need to move in order to heal and become real. I do a lot of my work with stories, mostly about my own life, because that's what I understand.
0: you got a lot of stories to tell.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I was the class dummy for two years. But when I went the third grade, my teacher saw something in me that the other had not seen. And so she appointed me class governor. This is a India. because I could talk. You know, I could bring the work that we were doing as a class to the whole student body and give a report. I mean, that I could do. So this one time, the third grade was doing a play, and the play was the frog jumped over the pond. So. I was the tallest one in the class because I'd drunk the year before and all that stuff. (laughs) So I could jump over the pond. My mother made me a dyed green suit and all that. And so I walked out on the stage really proud of myself and I knew I could do this. But as I walked out onto the stage, I saw my two older brothers in the first row of the audience. And it just threw me off by step just enough that when I jumped over the pond, I landed in it. <laughs> so I'm standing there in this pond crying. The dye is faded and going in, And I can't do anything but stand there and cry. My brother in the audience are just cracking up. The whole audience is hysterical. Teacher finally comes on leads me off the stage. In my mind, I'm totally humiliated. I'm just done. And so we go home and my brothers are telling the family at dinner and my mother's listening to what they're saying. And I'm trying to give them the devil's eye and they're not paying any attention to me. But they're laughing at the you're just having the best time with with how it looks, you know. Finally my mother says, All right, boys, you've had your fun now. What can we as a family do to help Gladys so that if this ever happens again, she'd be able to have the people laugh with her, not at her. Mm-hmm. And I don't remember what it was that we did, but that thing, that statement changed my life. Because with this dyslexia stuff, I'm clumsy. And I do, a lot of times, walk up on a stage and I trip and I fall. Not too long ago, I tripped and got up and went up to the podium, and I'm standing there and saying to the audience, oh, I'm such a drama queen. And the woman who had just introduced me <laughs> came up to me, and she said, Dr. Gladys, will you please go sit down? The blood that's running down the side of your face. <laughs> oh, uh. So my mother was always able to find something, some little thing to twist it around so that it, it changed. She was an angel with this. One time when, just a week before she died, really, we were sitting out on our porch here, and uh, she says to my dad, John, look at that petunia bush. It's got at least 400 blossoms on it. And my dad says, oh, Beth, they are not more than 40. She says, what's another zero? <laughs> you know? I mean, that kind of sense of humor <laughs> was the juice actually allowed me and still does allows me to take the things that are you know that they're hard <laughs> and use them cuz now if i have something like that happen i can have the audience in my hand before i ever say anything you know because now i can understand that i've got to come up with something funny and i always can do that And we're off to running.
0: Immediately you say, there I am, I'm standing in the pond again. Let's make the best of this. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. You know, and that's such a powerful principle for a well-lived life is to make lemonade out of the lemons, right? Because there's a lot of lemons in life. And if you just are sour about all the lemons, then you're just going to be a sour person. So figure out how to make lemonade and have fun with those, learn from those. But I like that idea of living through it instead of getting over it. And yeah, we got to wrap up soon. But I, another really powerful thing you say is—it's kind of common wisdom that as you get older, to power down, conserve energy, slow down. And though those things might happen, you have a different view on it, don't you?
1: Oh yeah, you know, like my eyesight—that's dim now, and I can't really see well. Doesn't mean that I've lost my insight. It's a, a shift in perspective as we get older. There are things that we have learned because we've lived our lives this long. And if we can take those things that we have learned as learning instead of trauma or things that keep us stuck, if we think that the things that are hard in our lives are the things that get us stuck, we're going to die sooner. (laughs) You know, life has to move. It's essential that life moves. You know, when I tell a patient to go home and rest, I'm not telling them to go home and do nothing. To rest is doing something. So when folks think that they're, what, 75, they need to stop doing this, that, or the other thing, maybe they do for a while. Or maybe you need to change the way you do things or something. Maybe there needs to be a change, but you don't stop doing it. Right.
0: This is why the idea of retirement was such a horrible idea because, you know, people die within five years of retirement because they lose their, they lose the movement. They lose their sense of purpose and life just kind of grinds to a halt. So no to retirement, just shift your focus, you know, bring your lessons to the world like you have. Or, you know, be in service in some other way. And you can do that until the day you die and, and life will keep flowing.
1: Well, I always said that I wasn't going to retire until I had something to retire to. <laughs> and what happened was that my brother, who had created the Future Generations, which is a healing process around the world, it's an amazing thing, he had found out that in Afghanistan, the Afghani women's maternal death rate was higher than any place else in the world, and they couldn't get the answer. They couldn't get the story. They couldn't find out why this was. So, Carl, my brother, said, out. look, you're 86. You're saying, if you want to retire to something, how about you come with me over to Afghanistan, and we'll set up workshops where we can listen to the women about their birth stories. Nobody has listened to them. So I was 86 and so it suited me fine. I went over there and spent time with women. We had two women from 10 different villages in each of these workshops. We heard their life stories. We heard why they gave birth. We found out the problems that they we were having. They knew how they got pregnant, but they didn't know what goes on. And you know, like, I don't know what's going on in my gut right now. You know, it's that process that is processed all the time that you're pregnant. So they didn't know. And when they found out what was happening and they learned it and they took it to their villages, that whole process has gone change. But these Afghani women got it and they taught and women do this. When women learn something, really learn it, they teach it.
0: Right. You've probably answered this, but like, what would you like to have known, or what if you could go back and tell your twenty-year-old selves something that would improve your life? What would it be?
1: Well, this moment that I'm in right now is the most important. Okay, really living each moment is the most important
0: moment. Yeah, because that's really all we all we have. Yeah, everything else is just either imagination or memory,
1: and it comes, it goes. That's right.
0: Well, this has been a true honor. I really want to thank you very much for your time and your contribution, and people are going to love your book. The book is um, The Well-Lived Life. Is it out in the markets now as I'm recording this? Yeah, it's
1: around. It's coming out in paperback, too.
0: I don't imagine you use social media or any of that stuff, but if anyone wanted to kind of connect with you,
1: how would they do so? dot com.
0: Well, once again, thank you very much for your time. Really appreciate it. And I love the conversation.
1: You're and certainly welcome. <laughs> it's my joy.
0: You have a wonderful day. Well, that was an extraordinary interview. I hope you found it as inspiring as I did with Dr. Gladys McCurry. Thank you so much for joining me today. I love this idea that it's not a matter of getting over stuff, but of living through it. Very, very inspirational. Show notes are up on their website, markdivine.com. You can find me on LinkedIn or on Twitter, X, at MarkDivine, and on Instagram or Facebook, at RealMarkDivine. If you're not uh, connected with me on my with my newsletter, Divine Inspiration, you might consider subscribing at MarkDivine.com. comes out every Tuesday, where I disseminate the most interesting, inspirational things I come across through my blog, through the show notes of the week's podcast, through a weekly practice and a book I'm reading, all of it to help you lead a life with more compassion, courage, and inspiration. Thanks so much to my stepdaughter, Catherine Devine, and Jason Sanderson and Jeff Haskell who help bring this podcast with incredible guests like Gladys and the newsletter to you every week. As you know, ratings and reviews are very helpful, so if you haven't rated or viewed The Mark Devine Show, please consider doing so wherever you listen. It helps others find it, and it keeps us relevant and um, keeps me motivated. Finally, thank you so much for doing the work, for being the change you want to see in the world, and for sharing it with your family and friends so that we can do that at scale. We're not going to fight the negativity. We are going to ignore it and bring positivity and light in the world through our thoughts and our words and our actions. So, who are you out of that? Till next time, it's your host, Mark Devine, out here. If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com/audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com/audio. That's carshield.com/audio. So, you've got an idea for a business. The store of your dreams. There's just one thing to figure out